Welcome to the Globe Screen Podcast. Globe Screen is an international events company operating festivals and conferences for the entertainment industry in the US, UK, and France. Find us on Twitter at Globe Screen C-O-N-F. We're so pleased to have Eric Brodor on the Globe Screen Podcast. Welcome, Eric. Hello. Hello. Good morning. Eric, tell us a little bit how you got into editing. Yeah, editing was a career change for me. I had uh, was living in Pennsylvania around the Philadelphia area and had been in the uh, IT industry for some time. But I'd always loved films and movies and thought to myself how great it would be to work in that industry someday. But living out that way, you know, there's a little bit of filmmaking. Uh, M, M. Night uh, Shyamalan is from that area. Uh, but for the most part, it's obviously not regarded as a filmmaking mecca by any chance, by any sorts. And New York was not really something on my radar. So one day I just packed up my bags and moved out to L.A., stayed with a friend, and then took some time to figure out what I wanted to actually do. Uh, and long story short, I eventually found myself uh, getting into editing on the post-production side. Nice. And is there any specific genres that uh, you prefer to work on in terms of film editing? I first started out working on uh, independent films. Uh, most of them were dramas. Uh, and then as the years have gone on and I moved into uh, union shows with studios, it sort of became a thing where wherever, you know, whatever jobs kind of came up and people you could work with uh, that you had worked with in the past and friends and whatnot. And uh, so it, those have been some action films, uh, a lot of horror. Uh, the horror genre is just a popular one. And so and there's just a lot of films being made in that genre. So, uh, but it was probably a few of them into it that I realized that when I was, uh, when I was living in Pennsylvania and working a, a job, me and my buddy, every night after work, we'd go to the local video store and rent movies and ha have a couple beers. And I re remember all we used to watch were really bad horror films and action films. Uh, and so I think it was probably some point as I got older, I just stopped watching horror uh, because it had transitioned from just that crazy stuff from uh, the eighties into a lot of torture porn and just a lot of stuff that, you know, the, the hostel, I think, sort of launched that that uh, genre of horror. And that just wasn't to my taste. But um, then but anyway, but then after working in it for a while, I realized that uh, I had already had a pretty big background as uh, as a fan. And so I've sort of embraced it. Um, but I wouldn't say it's necess that I have a specific favorite genre. I just love movie making. So whatever great project comes along with a great team of people, I'm up for working on it. Excellent. And I know that uh, you have a pretty extensive career, both as a film editor and also as a first assistant editor. So could you describe a little bit about how the editorial department on a feature is organized and what's the role of the first assistant editor? Yeah, absolutely. When I first moved out here and was looking into film, uh, I wasn't sure what I wanted to to do. I think I had been so fed up with working in the IT industry for for corporations that the last thing I wanted to do was was work in something like post where I was behind a, a screen all day. Um, and so I had been looking at, you know, all the different jobs on set you could do, or writing, just everything that didn't have me sitting at a desk all day long. Um, but then after sort of looking at what my uh, existing skills were with uh, technology and just where my interest lied with wanting to be a part of the team that was really critical to the success of making the film, 
Uh, and as I was narrowing down into editorial, uh, I was realizing then that you know there's just editing is 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 the pinnacle of sort of where where you go in post from the standpoint of the storytelling. And then as I started to get some work, then I started to realize there's there's post PAs, there's uh, the assistant editor, but there's not not just one. There could be multiple ones, uh, and there's a certain hierarchy. Hierarchy has more to do with bigger shows. But anyway, the so the role of the the editor has the all encompassing creative role. They're interfacing with all with the director and the rest of the team involved, and they're in there, you know, uh, making cuts and you know crafting the whole look and flow of the film. Obviously, there's input from the director and whatnot, but the editor, especially during during the shoot, they're in there just cutting and crafting and and uh, putting their interpretation on what was shot and what was in the script. However, the editor, their primary focus is, is cutting. So you've got a team of one or more assistant editors who are there making sure that the editor has everything that they need. Um, that's making sure that dailies are coming in and getting sorted and, and organized, making sure that the footage that is coming in, that you have all of it. Um, there's so many, so many moving parts on a feature and there's lots of reports that come in and, and logs and whatnot, but sometimes you still get the occasional missing camera roll or sound roll. So the first assistant editor's job is to make sure that everything is coming and going out of the cutting room. Uh, so we, as I mentioned, you get all these dailies, making sure that there's nothing wrong with picture and sound. Um, when it comes to uh, working with other departments, the, the assistant editor is there to make sure that the sound team gets all the appropriate um, media and pieces from, from the show that they need. The same thing for the composer, the visual effects team. There's a whole lot of you know, IO uh, involved with it. And I've, I've never worked in film itself. Everything I've done has all been digital. But the, and so you know, back in the film days, all of this stuff would be you know, the actual negative and you know, dealing with big roles of of that and it would go out to to different places and they would handle what needed to get handled with that on the digital side uh, it's just all there in the editing software so you have to make sure that you understand how to get that stuff out of the editing software as well as to understand different file formats and and the technical side and making sure that everybody has what they need um and one of the other elements is the assistant editor really needs to know where you're going at the end of, of the show because um, you got to make sure that as things are coming in, that they're getting processed properly so that when you're finally at the end and you've locked picture, you can get all of that back out in a way where you're not missing elements or it makes it uh, extra, extra difficult for the other departments to get what they need. Um, that makes perfect sense. And is the process a lot different on a TV show versus a feature film? The majority of my work has been in features, uh, but from talking to different friends and just from what, what I've learned through stories on episodic, uh, it moves faster, especially if it's something that's airing on a network. You know, they're shooting for a couple of weeks and then they're in post for a few weeks and the whole process is just, it just moves along at a much more rapid pace. Um, you know, with features, you usually have the benefit of a longer post schedule, 
period and oftentimes uh, depending upon the project your 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 release date is pretty far out um, so kind of when I worked on transformers there was a locked in date there so you had to work backwards from that and hustle uh, as things went along but a lot of the smaller features I've worked on they might have had certain dates that they were shooting for uh, and if for some reason something had happened where you couldn't quite make that date uh, they usually move those around and they were pretty fluid on it. Do you find some directors are more hands-on with the editing situation than others? Of course, as you'd probably expect, all of them are different. You know, every every director comes to the experience with, you know, how they just envision the film and, and the things they want to see. Um, but from the standpoint of whether the amount of hands-on, it, it depends. Mo I think the best directors are the ones that let all the rest of the crew do what they do best. The director is there to make sure that the film gets done and it meets the vision that was uh, uh, that it was born from. But to let you know, let, let the crew do the best of what they can do. So director comes in, watches, gives notes, and they leave you alone to uh, to keep crafting the the film. You've got some. Some directors that do enjoy getting in there and cutting. Um, it, from my experience, it's usually just rough cuts. They're in there and they're, you know, they've got the the dailies. And if there's something specific about a scene that they want to see, they'll they'll just do a super rough cut of that, uh, send it back to the cutting room so they can at least get an idea of, of what 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 the director's vision for a, a scene was. Or if there was a scene that the director couldn't be there in person or just said, Hey, you know what, let me, let me, let me just dive into here and move some things around and kind of give you an idea of what I was looking for. Uh, but there's not, I mean, I know James Cameron does that. Mike, Michael Bay does. Uh, most of the, the directors I've worked with, they just kind of sit back and it's more of a dialogue and you kind of evaluate what you have and make changes and keep going. I like how you describe the role of the director. It almost seems like, uh, the composer of a symphony. Yeah, yeah. I worked on a film called called Exeter with Marcus Nispel, and um, he uh, he was great because he would come into the room, we'd watch a scene, uh, we would do some cutting, and then he would be like, "Okay, well, I'll see you in a bit." And he would get up and go out into the lobby and make some phone calls and take some meetings, and he'd come in you know a while later and ask how it was going, and you'd watch it and. He, you chit chat for a while, you give uh, some notes, usually go off on some side tangent about, you know, uh, not getting peanut butter candy snacks in the cutting room anymore or some weird side story about what you liked about Star Wars. And then you get back to cutting and then he'd be like, okay, well, I'm going to go make some more phone calls and he'd want wander off. And so it was cool. You know, it was kind of, you, know, you, you, you get space to, to get those notes, but then to kind of have your, you know, your own private space again, just to kind of keep, keep working. So, so you don't have somebody literally breathing down your neck. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there's that, not usually doing that anyway, because at least in this day and age, everybody's so wrapped up on their phones and their their laptops. But you know, but it was, but it's exactly like you were saying. It's more of a of a you know conductor of a symphony, just kind of you know, coming and going. But that's uh, pretty cool. How do you cut for something like Facebook Watch or Quibi, and now that they're mobile platforms now that they're gaining in popularity? I've got limited experience with some of those, but um, from some of the experience I have, at least with Facebook Watch, is a lot of 
a lot of the uh, format of an episode is contingent upon the analytics of what the audience is is doing. Um, I guess the audiences aren't watching things in in order. I, mean, I would always start at episode one and jump and then go to episode two and three and four. That's how I would watch the series. But it sounds like, uh, and then it might be varied by age group as well, but they'll, you know, whatever episode the advertising algorithm shows you first sometimes is what people watch first. Uh, and then they'll either go back and start from the from the beginning of the series or jump around. So um, the analytics sort of guides some of the cutting style to make sure that if somebody is jumping in uh, halfway through the series that there's enough, just enough little bits in there that they can get some ideas to where this whole story is uh, in some fashion. Sure, um, that makes sense. And, and, I, and I imagine a lot of it is just, just technical formatting for aspect ratios for, you know, viewing something on a, mobile platform versus a TV or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. I, I guess um, that's, that part's a little bit of a head scratcher for me because uh, um, a project that I worked on, uh, they were really interested in a lot of wide shots, which is great. Um, but if you consider that the viewer is on an, is oftentimes on a phone, um, I'm just not sure how much information you're conveying to, to the viewer looking at a wide shot on a phone, but no, it's that's a, this is a topic that really fascinates me because I'm always asking people that respond or don't respond to certain films how they viewed the film. For instance, you know, if somebody says they they didn't like the movie The Revenant, my first question is, well, did you see it in the movie theater or are you watching it at home on your little TV? Like imagine watching The Revenant on your phone. It's a vastly different experience than watching it in the movie theater where the screen is much bigger than yourself. No, yeah, you're absolutely. I think there's such. Um, uh, I think watching any content from your phone or for a, a iPad, it's great, and I think you do it. But you do it because you're not at a convenient place to be watching it on a larger screen. You know, you're on a train, you're on a bus, you're on vacation somewhere. But all these films and television shows, um, they're all shot with the intention of being shown on a big screen. Um, it's not. I mean, you know, the the shooting in you know 2k 4k 6k 8k if we're just going to put everything onto a phone that has a maximum res of of maybe quad hd or whatever you know 2048 by something is then why are we shooting in higher res you know i mean you can shoot in the higher res so you can make certain things easier to reframe but uh if we were making everything for a small screen you wouldn't have to throw as much tech behind all of it because you don't have to worry about Dolby 5.1 or, or Atmos. I mean, um, so I think everything is really meant to be seen on a big screen. And I think there's also been, people have been too comfortable with their setup at home. Like, uh, oh, I have five, one at home. I have Dolby Atmos at home. And if you've ever had the chance to sit into a theater uh, or even go to Dolby itself and you sit into a properly tuned theater, you know, it's going to give you an experience that you'd be hard pressed to get at home with just buying stuff from Best Buy and setting it up. A hundred percent. I want to get into a little bit about the science of how the pace of cutting has changed over the decades and choppy a film can basically audiences could bear to watch it in the past versus the present day. Is that something that, uh, that you give a lot of thought to? Yeah. I, I think the overall cutting style depends upon what the, what the, show is and obviously the filmmakers are going to have a certain idea as well 
But uh, the longer that I do this, the more I see that there really are no rules. Um, there's always conventions. If you look at Walter Murch's in the blink of an eye, there's in know, the blink of an eye. It's a cla classic book that all editors, yeah. I feel like, have to be familiar with. Yeah, and uh, but it's it, he just bullet points what you kind of figure out uh, just doing it anyway. But there's certain places you know where it makes sense to to make a cut, and certain places where it makes sense not to. But then you just watch the footage, and you can just do whatever you really can do whatever that that you want, and you can break any of these. You know, there's the uh, crossing the line. I mean, you can break all of that stuff. It really just what matters the most is what's flowing on that screen. You know, yes. if whatever you're watching works uh, and it doesn't, if, if you want, if you're not jarred out of the experience, then uh, the editing is fine. And um, I was just watching a action horror film a few nights ago and uh, the cutting, it was so rapid paced that uh, it was, it was taking me out because I wanted to actually see, I wanted to see these, these creatures being killed and I wanted to see this action and all I was just seeing was, you know, eight and 10 frame cuts that I really couldn't ascertain what the heck was, was going on. And I wasn't sure if that was a style or it was trying to cover up some sort of problem with footage. Um, but I think each film, just uh, the pacing of it uh, is really is dependent upon really personal preference in a way. Obviously, the pacing overall is important, uh, no matter what, what the film is, but the cutting style, fast or slow. And I think over time, it's changed for sure. Um, you know, you go back to the you know, 40s and 50s, and, you know, everything was just, you know, straight cuts, and it was usually nothing too crazy and good at things like, the, you know, I think the first Bourne film uh, was super fast cuts. And, but even, but even those were, you know, they, they don't, Pull you out they really bring they bring you into the action but uh, we were i think we did uh, other day we we're chatting about uh steve mcqueen and bullet from the 60s and i i pull up the scene to to watch again and the informant has just been killed and you're watching the doctors trying to bring it back to a life and you're on this medium wide shot in the hospital hallway and it's just interesting if it was a style choice or just they weren't into rapid cutting at that point uh, because you're on this medium wide shot and you're just watching from the outside hallway uh, people kind of slowly walk out of, of the room and go fetch another person and go fetch this you know this crash cart they kind of go they wander back in and there's absolutely no there's no urgency to it there's um, like no narrative purpose to it <laughs> Well, it's interesting because it, it makes me there's from the standpoint of these people being doctors and nurses, you think there'd be this super urgency to get the stuff in there. Uh, and I think I, I think today we would have cut that to be much more rapid. So it's interesting to see, you know, was that just a choice of the filmmaker back then or just that was, you know, they just they saved the fast cuts for the car chases and certain action that they felt was more worthy of that. Maybe this was drama. This was, you know, building that tension and making that drama. Yeah, it's no, just, I, I do think it's interesting to kind of look at films from the seventies or, you know, previous eras and kind of see what, what choices they would have made. I'm always interested in looking at other filmmakers work. Um, I'm a filmmaker myself. So like people that I know, are making choices that I definitely would not have made that choice. Although sometimes it's very, it's an interesting choice. It could be a bold choice, but I'm, I'm certain that I wouldn't have done that. So I don't know if you ever 
analyze movies in that sort of way? Yeah, it's it's tough. I usually go into any film just wanting to enjoy what I'm watching, and I try not to really analyze it uh, because what I've learned over the years is you don't you don't know what you don't know is what challenges that that they had. So there could be some weird, crazy cut that you see, and um, and but what you don't realize is that maybe there 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 was some coverage problem that day. So they couldn't get all these setups that they wanted. So you've got some weird, awkward cut, you know, that looks like it's a jump cut. And you'd be like, why on earth would they do it that way for? And, you know, it's uh, probably because they just didn't have any other way of fixing it. Uh, yeah. Yeah. No, but there are, but there are those times, but there are those times when you just watch and, and edit and you just, you shake your head for a second because you're like, what was that supposed to mean yeah i guess what i'm referring to is like definitely purposeful choices like for instance i was watching an independent film on netflix a couple of years ago and the film starts with a guy and a girl breaking up in a diner and the whole coverage for like the first seven minutes of the film is just on the guy's fate uh, i was just on the girl's face just reacting to this guy breaking up with her and he's sort of the main character and i know that that's not a choice that i would have made but i found that it was an interesting choice it was i would i would say it was definitely a purposeful choice of just like the style of filmmaking but um was it um uh how how enthralled were you by that like i mean was that for i liked it i thought it worked i thought i thought uh I thought they pulled it off in a way where it kind of made me really remember that scene in, in a in a particular way. But I know it's it's something that I probably would not have done. So that's yeah, the kind yeah, of thing yeah. that I'm talking about. And you know, I know certain directors. It kind of ties into our the earlier question about how different directors work with different editors. You know, I know that some of it's in the pre production. Even I know that certain directors really shoot for coverage like i know that david o russell who made the silver linings playbook um and the movie the the movie the fighter and american hustle like he's really a director that i know he shoots a ton of coverage and he really builds his film in the editing room versus i know that alfred hitchcock used to storyboard every shot and he really didn't give editors a lot of leeway as far as coverage. Just, you know, this is the way the film is going to look and it's pre-planned from before it's even shot. So I guess it just depends on the style of the filmmaker, but that's, that's what makes it sort of interesting to me. Now, uh, but, now, but what you're saying, uh, no, it makes sense. I mean, there's some, yeah, that definitely come into it, you know, know exactly what they want and they've made so many films that they, they plan it all out. And they know exactly what, what they're going to shoot. What I found is it really depends upon the budget and the experience of the director. Uh, if the more shooting days that, that they have, they'll just by default be able to get more, more coverage and or just their ability to get things done faster. Uh, and, but usually I've seen there's a limitation to how many shooting days, which is tied to uh, the budget and then the experience. It's almost, it's almost as if, the more experienced directors should be making five and $10 million films because you have to be so much more uh, on top of it versus with a big budget film, there's just so much money that's there. If you have to add shooting days or reshoot because you're not as experienced, that's 
that's that's available to you but obviously it's really you know it's at the end of the day you know it doesn't work out there's been plenty of less experienced filmmakers who've just botched big budget films for that reason but it's interesting though we we give the least experienced filmmaker the least amount of money and basically it's just trial by but by fire that's but I think so that's yeah what, that's so interesting I've definitely thought about that i'm like man every filmmaker that I'm friends with, you know, is making, you know, smaller budget projects. And, you know, then the, the amount of shooting days sometimes is ridiculous. It's, it's such little shooting days versus like a Ridley Scott who's on a directing a film for like six months. And so I guess that's my dream as a filmmaker to have that kind of <laughs> just yeah, that right. amount of time, really more so than budget. It's just, I just wish like, I mean, obviously it ties into the budget, but it's, it's really just the amount of time. I would just love to have that many shooting days on a film. Absolutely, because everything, it's always boils down to the coverage. And you're in the edit and somebody asks a question. Well, how come we don't cut, cut over here? And it's usually be, and your answer is unfortunately, well, because we don't have that. You know? Or we have one, one take of it and it's not good. And, uh, um, and uh, you, there's, it's interesting because if you shoot wider, if you shoot with the 4k and higher cameras and you shoot a wider shot you can always punch into it and so in a way i think that's a good safety net um i wouldn't shoot everything wide but you know you can always you know if you need to punch in if you know you're gonna shoot you're gonna shoot 4k you're gonna finish in 2k you can punch in 100 percent. yeah you know, you've got twice the amount of pixels there if it's not 100 it's you know it's you know, you, you can get in there a, a lot closer so you can create new camera angles, which is great, um, but you can't create a wide out of a close-up, uh, and exactly. and a bad close-up's not necessarily worth having. Uh, the other thing, which usually goes goes missing, are establishing shots and inserts. True, uh, and you gotta you, know, you you gotta get them, and they're pretty quick to get, which is what I find fascinating is the why they seem to be forgotten about. Um, yeah, I, I've thought about that too. I think it's part of it is just a stylistic thing of the era of this current era where, you know, sometimes people just cut straight into a scene, um, you know, versus establishing the outside of the house. They just cut straight into the bedroom, for example. You know, I mean, I think it's just, I, and I don't know if it's a bad or good thing. It's just, you know, <laughs> it's just how it is. Um but yeah, you're right. There's definitely less establishing shots than there were in previous eras of film. Um, well, and the, the the good thing is, if you if you have the resources to shoot it, you at least have it, you know. And then you can choose to use it or not use it. But it's uh, you know, when you want really want something that you don't have, uh, and or you chose to drop. Now, that's why shot lists are so important because you go into the shooting day and you know you've got these 20 setups uh but now for some reason you can only get half of them you need to be able to work pretty quickly to make the choices is to make sure that you get the most important coverage for for that scene uh and always get those shots up front or at least get those you know get get your wide mediums and close-ups in your first few setups and then, you know, and then if you still have time, move, move on to your fancier, you know, angles and tracking shots and whatever it, it, it is that you've got on your shooting day. Yeah. And I know based off previous conversations that you're primarily working from 
Avid versus other editing softwares. So I don't know if that's something you want to talk about a little bit. Sure. Uh, every fee, every show I've worked on has been uh, edited with Avid Media Composer, and it's an interesting it's interesting to observe when you watch when you look at social media and you look at the folks that work in the industry full time have been doing it and those that are making their own films but aren't necessarily in part of the Hollywood system yet. Uh, it's interesting and fascinating to see what they all do and don't like about certain pieces of editing software. Um, most indie filmmakers that are still just doing their own thing, they're, they're in love with Final Cut Pro 10 or they're in love with Adobe, uh, the Adobe Premiere. And then you hear them, if they'll make a comment about Avid uh, and say, oh, I tried Avid, it was so hard to use, I just don't uh, understand it, I just couldn't do this or that. And um, yeah, and it, you know, and I guess it'll be as if you and I, somebody invited us to a, a, a indie car race and they said, here you go, sit in this you know, 2000 horsepower car and start the engine and, uh, and make a drive. They're like, oh, well, how hard could that be? There's a steering wheel and a pedal and then you do those things, you're like, wait a minute, it doesn't work the same way as a regular car because it's not a regular car. And I think Avid, the Avid software was built at a time when there was a certain paradigm, a certain, uh, there was that physical workflow of cutting film with your hands that they took that concept uh, and created a digital version of that. Also realizing that that software was written, I guess, back in the 80s um, and, you know, the world Computers were a completely different beast back then. It's only really been the last, you know, 10 to 20 years that you've got, you know, all of this drag and drop and all the stuff that just wasn't possible back at that point. And so, but each of these platforms has their pros and cons. I mean, I, I've worked, I've worked on, you know, on projects in all of them. Um, but what's so great about the Ava platform is that every other team that you need to work with they all they you always know you can get out of it what you put into it because when you need to do a sound turnover to the sound editors you need to make sure that you can give them everything that's going to be in sync and they have the ability to go back to all the production sound and all the isod mics and be able to you know to really pick the the best takes for for technical reasons and with a lot of software packages if they don't really fully support that it just becomes a bigger burden on the other departments that have to take you know a a turnover that you know is only really 50 percent of what they need um I, i'd have to go into more technical details on it but avid but what's so great about the avid is that you can always you can always get the project done and um and i think i was sharing with you guys before well some of the early features that were being cut with Final Cut Pro 10, everybody was like, oh, the, you know, this is it. This is its final, you know, this is when it's finally going to take down Avid and it's going to become the number one piece of editing software. And I would talk to some of the techs that were involved with that film and they tell me, oh yeah, um, yeah, they, they can't use the full 4K streams now. There's something wrong with, you know, the hardware or the software. So now they're running on, on, proxies and then and then you talk some more and they're like oh yeah we're actually going to head over to the studio now or because they have a whole they have a whole avid setup where they're basically mirroring all of those cuts in final cut because if it doesn't work out they want to know they can still finish their film so um yeah you know, it's uh 
you know, you can, I mean, you can use any piece of software to do anything, but at a certain level, when there's a ton of money on the line, you got to be able to use the products and platforms that you know are going to get the job done with the least amount of headaches. Sure. And sometimes it's about, um, cause yeah, at the end of the day, software is essentially cutting tools. So it's like whether you're using this sort of knife or that sort of knife, but I guess on these bigger projects that you're working on, a lot of it seems to me about also liaising between different departments and absolutely and and that's where that's where avid shines avid shines in a multi-user environment and they shine when you have to work with other other departments that aren't in the room and when you look at indie filmmakers it's usually that person is doing all of that work so there's no there's no understanding of the concept of the other teams or they just kind of struggle through it to make it work yeah and I guess, how are theatrical film deliverables evolving as the technology changes, such as the digital intermediate process? Will that look the same, you know, for a post-process now versus in a few years from now? I think so, because right now with the Avid, you still edit everything with proxy files, right? So you could shoot something in in 8K, but we're going to do, we're going to transcode it down to HD and work on it in, in, in HD. And the reason for that. I mean, that could change over time, but the reason for that is because, you know, it's a lot less processing power to manage a bunch of HD low bitrate streams than to sit there and work nat- natively at 8K. You know, I mean, you know, if your 8K pipe is, you know, if you look at this 8K file and compare it to a water pipe and it's and it's three feet wide compared to the HD stream, which is, you know, six, six inches wide, you know, you got to how does your computer going to correlate with that? And, you know, these computers are powerful, but they're not in a position to be able to do all of that in, in real time from the standpoint of cutting. When you get into the DI, they've conformed it all back to, to the high res picture and it plays back and it's fine. But you know, those are a pretty expensive rigs and that all they're doing is just playing back your cut. They're not, they're not set up to be, you know, editing uh, with multiple layers and temp comps and things like that. Um, yeah, that so, makes perfect sense. So, uh, you know, and then as well, if you, if you're traveling, you know, are you going to carry a, you know, a, a 64 terabyte raid with you, you know, uh, versus just being able to maybe put all your dailies on a four terabyte, you know, USB drive. So. Sure. Yeah. And, you know, I'm sure some people want to be able to at least make cut, some scenes together on their laptop versus, you know, you have a beast of a machine really, you know? Yeah. And, and all these apps, you know, if you know how the application works, you can, you can bring in the original footage, create a proxy from it and then link back to, to your master footage without a ton of, of grief. So, um, you know, uh, short form is great. I mean, if you've got a a powerful system and you're working on, uh, on commercial spots, you know, that might make, you know, some more sense of being able to work, you know, with a higher, to skip the transcoding and just work in a higher bit rate and res file because, you know, you're working with, you know, 30 second, you know, time timelines without a ton of uh, layers and whatnot. But, but even so, it just comes back down to all the same thing. You know, it's like, if you get a big, heavy file, it just takes a way more system power to make it just play, play back. And is it really worth it from the standpoint of the expense and storage and whatnot? It's a, it's a, it's a rabbit hole of uh, tech. Yeah, I know. I, I even have some, 
I'm curious just about, I, I was always actually just curious whether, like, is there a standardization of the proxies? Like, do you use like 1080 or like 720? Is it like usually H.264 or is it just depends on the deliverables of each project or like, do they give you like those specs or? Yeah, with, with Media Composer, you're almost always using the Avid, Avid's codec, the DNX HD. Uh, there is a, there's newer versions of it, uh, DNX HR, uh, but it's, you know, it's, it's a codec that they created that was specifically intended for offline editing. Uh, so it's, because uh, it's not as processor in intensive to do the decode of that. And there's, it's oftentimes done at uh, DNX 36, which is a 36 megabits per second video channel. Uh, but more and more, we're doing things at 115, which is, you know, just three, you know, it's three times as big. So you get more, more picture data in there. So it's a better, it's a better image, but it's still manageable across networks and, and playback on the local systems. Um, you'd never want to use H.264 to edit with because the type of codec that that is, how it arranges the data in each frame just takes a lot more processing to a decode it's fine for for mastering you know playing back off of blu-rays and off off the web but to edit with um it's kind of janky and you know apple's got prores you know that's its native format for both uh editing as well as final mastering nice there's other codecs out there i think cineform has one and but uh it usually tends to be tied to whatever the editing platform is and even something like if you use adobe to edit with you know they can accept all those different formats so you'd probably shoot something in prores or convert it to a dnx and you'd conform it all back to the camera master anyway later right what's what's one of the biggest lessons that you've really learned from working in the industry working in the cutting room it's a it's a great experience because you're in the middle of everything happening with with that film uh obviously once uh, when it's being shot the director is out you know, shooting but once the shooting's wrapped and you're in post you're just you're in the room with the director you're in the room with people from the studio you're in the room with everybody that you know is an important part of of making that film a, a success uh, and what you learn in there, you obviously you're you're learning things about how you can cut and how you solve problems and and amp up action and scares. So there's you know certainly the craft of it, but you learn so much about the politics and the industry itself because you're in the room and you're hearing stories about uh, from the uh, director of of how he or she had written that script and the process of pitching it and finally getting it bought, and then and then being uh, asked to uh direct it and then you've got so they're in there so and so they're, they're perhaps sharing with you stories about how that film got made from the from the very start they're sharing with you experiences about how they dealt with uh, actors uh oftentimes you'll watch dailies and and be like oh man that actor just like they just phoned it in and then the director will be like oh well yeah you know uh you know that that you know that day their grandparent had died and they heard about it and it just you know that was you know that was just as good as they could do that day or you'd be like yeah they were great in the rehearsals but you know they just couldn't really you know they they just couldn't pull through on the, the on the shoot so you just hear all these ins and outs of that and then you get the the producers in the room and you know they'll be looking at the film from both you know oftentimes the uh, 
how good is this going to do for us in the in the theaters? And so there's a whole different level of of feedback there, and uh, and some of it is in uh, direct conflict. Some sometimes with what the director wants, and some of it you kind of wonder, like, wow, that's a wacky thing. But you know, but you just see from there from more of the business side of it, the uh, what they're looking at, and so. Um, you just get this inside scoop about how that film was made, how the industry works. You'll hear about upcoming projects that they're working on. I mean, I see why you sign all these N NDA forms because you become privy to so much information about that project and other projects in, in their, their pipeline. And you just get to meet these amazing people and you get personalities to deal with. Uh, but it's just a, uh, it's a learning experience that you know, is beyond anything you would expect when you first think about what editing is. Yeah, and I guess being in the cutting room is a great way to keep your ear to the ground of what's going on as far as like the pulse of the industry, it sounds like. Yeah, for sure. And sometimes you hear you hear what they're what what's in the pipeline and, and you're scratching your head like, how does that make any sense? Or why is that better than this other film that came out? And um, you know, it's just uh it's just yeah, you just hear all of it, uh, but that's you know that's that's how it works, you know. And so you sort of need to study that and and take from that what you will. I mean, uh, every editor will tell you that politics is you know that they have to be really good at that because you got to manage all these people that are in the room, and each personality is is different and has different opinions and thoughts, and some of it's ego, some of it's just creative. Uh, but so the editor definitely has to uh, manage the politics of it. But I think overall there's tremendous learning op opportunities. Uh, and a lot of folks who I know, whether they're editing or the, the, they're assistant editors, they really get hung up on, they get hung up on the politics. They get hung up on the money side of things and all of that stuff's important, but I think it's a matter of don't get hung up on it, but what can you learn about that and you know, somehow leverage that? in uh, your favor. Yeah. And it's important to always, I feel like keep a sense of perspective too. So like think about it, but not probably focus in too hard on certain things I would imagine. Yeah. And there's many times when we, we joke that you know, we're just editing a, a movie. We're not curing cancer. You know, we're not, you know, figuring out how to end starvation in the world. It's, it's just a, a movie, you know, it's just a television show. And sometimes you have to tell yourself that, regardless of what those deadlines are, because, you know, in the grand scheme of important things in life, uh, it's, you know, it's probably not as, uh, it's again, it's just, we aren't curing cancer. Yeah, There's no, yeah. no, no one's lives are at risk. If, if this film is a day or two late. Yeah. That's, uh, that's the perspective that I'm talking about. So is there, is there any editors that you particularly like working for? I've worked with, uh, one, editor a lot, Ken Blackwell, and he, he's been great. Uh, you know, he worked his way up through being a, uh, a, a, an assistant editor and he's worked on a ton of, he's worked on a ton of great films, you know, horror action. He's worked with every major director, uh, in those genres. And so he's been someone I've learned a tremendous amount with, and he's super fun just to hang out with and be in the cutting room with, and he's chill. Um, so I've worked a lot with him and, and that's been a great experience. I've learned so, so much. Um, but, uh, and then when I moved on to Transformers, we had anywhere from six to 10 editors working at any one time. Uh, that's kind of extreme. Um, 
but you know, Michael had a particular plan of how he wanted certain uh, certain scenes to sort of play out. You know, some were more act, more more comedy, more action, more VFX, and so he sort of wanted different editors that were uh, that had specialized experience in those areas to cut certain scenes. But all of them were all great because they all come with all this huge background of of experience, and so you get to to learn from all of them. And I think with Transformers 2, I was lucky to have worked with a lot of really big editors. Uh, Mark Sanger, he won the Oscar for Gravity. He was one of the editors and he's working on the latest Jurassic World film. And he's a super great guy and fun. And uh, Roger Barton, who's worked with Michael Bay for many, many films and has done the Pirates, some of the more recent Pirates of the Caribbean and God, Godzilla is a tremendous amount to be learned from him. And again, just he's nice and fun and chill. And um, nice. it was, there was a bunch of other ed- editors as well. And they're all, you know, they're all really great at what they, they do. And it's just a wonderful experience. And, you know, some of the won Oscars, some hadn't, you know, but they were all just, they were invested in making the best movie that they could make with what they were given. So, do you know anything about like I guess editing for stereoscopic or 3D films? You know, back like around 2011, we had there was like a fad of 3D releases like Tintin and Clash of the Titans and Three Musketeers. Do you think we'll see any more experimentation with 3D theatrical releases? And could this be a good way for studios to offset the rise or popularity of Netflix or Amazon like streaming platforms? Yeah, that's a great question because you're right. It was this huge fad and I call it a fad because I think it was simply a way for the studios to sort of, you know, take advantage of uh, some more ticket sales and bumping up prices. Uh, I know features at the time, some of them were edited uh, stereoscopic. You know, they were folks that were wearing the 3D glasses and cutting on the Avid and carrying those stereo video tracks. Um uh, but I, from what I understand, it's a pretty tiring process because, you know, watching 3D is tough on your brain and your eyes, period. So I think they'd cut in 2D and then they would, you know, at the end of the day, play it back in 3 and, and make, make changes. Um, but the 3D conversions really seem to be, uh, I mean, that was hugely popular. Um, and so, you know, it's just the faux 3D that's that's created, but they do spend a lot of time and money trying to get that done right. On Transformers, we shot everything in uh, 3D, uh, but we cut it all in 2D and we had a whole other team that then managed, you know, the, you know, the parallax and, and whatnot. Uh, we really, in editorial, we didn't really have much involvement with that look. Uh, we just, you know, cut the film and they just, took uh, took took that part over um but as for going forward i think kind of what started off the 3d craze was james cameron with avatar and i think that's where it's going to circle back to i mean cameron i think avatar was really as from my opinion was the best 3d experience that i had ever seen because it was purposely shot for that and it was cg so you could do a lot more with it uh, and I know, you know, he's shooting in, another three avatars and I'm going to guess whatever he's learned in the time frame since the first one, he's going to incorporate into these films. And that will hopefully have a, you know, a nice little resurgence in uh, something in the 3D front, maybe bring some people back into the theater that might not otherwise or wanted to go back in, especially COVID and whatnot. Nice. I want, I want to really... Uh wrap up with i guess like what you're doing outside of editing 
as far as producing and developing your own projects? Yeah, it was, I think it was, it was really on Transformers. That, 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 that was a big show for me because I had worked on everything that was between five to 15 million dollar budgets. Uh, and a film is a film. I mean, you know, the same set of steps happens regardless of the size of the budget. They just happen with, with more locations or more sets or more VFX. But with Transformers, what I realized was that, uh, you know, everybody making the film were just filmmakers, you know, they had just been doing it for a long time. Um, and they were great at what they did in each of their departments. But I thought, you know, maybe this is a time to, since I've sort of seen the whole gamut from the low budget to, to, to the big budget, you know, it was time to see about checking into the other aspects of the, the filmmaking process outside of editing, which was writing. And so uh, I, uh, my, business partner Ty, he and I had known each other for a number of years. I had run this filmmaking group down here in the southern part of uh, Los Angeles and I had met him there and you know, had mentored him to a certain extent and you know, helped him get through this web series he was shooting at the time and we just you know stayed close friends and then as the years went on we just started to uh, collaborate on writing and trying to get a couple features off the ground that he had written. Uh, and then, but it was finally with Transformers that I said, you know, let's just let's just finally make a feature. Let's make it for as you know little money as as possible. Take what we've learned, and then uh, so we shot a, a small self-contained horror film. Uh, we're almost done with post. It's taken a long time because of the the budget we had and the the VFX that we have in the film. But that was our first bigger step, and since then we've just done uh, just really pushed the. Uh, pedal to the floor. Um, we've got, we have, we have a script that we have out going around to different studios right now. We've got some, some funding in, in place to make it. We need to finish uh, getting another production company on board. We've been optioning uh, some life rights of people to create this paranormal series. I've uh, got some bunch of other projects in the works, but I think everything that I had learned uh, in the cutting room to see how was the film shot uh, because you see all those dailies, you see exactly what was shot, how it was shot, what the script was like. Then you s learn from all these folks what it was like to, um, to to make those movies. And as we were just talking about with, you know, what do you learn just being in the cutting room? I said, all right, it's time to take all these experiences and, you know, and to give it a shot on making my own films. That sounds amazing, Eric. And I'm sure like all those stories, like you said you learn in the cutting room from working with different directors and that's that definitely uh valuable stuff so i look forward to watching your work well thank you yeah. yes hopefully uh yeah hopefully soon so this could be a big end of year for us so we'll see nice well we really appreciate you being on the globe screen podcast and uh again uh we look forward to continuing to see your work well thank you it, it was great being here thanks for having me it was great fun to talk.